Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Music Biz Weekly Podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Michael Branvold, and as always, I'm joined by Jay Gilbert. How are we doing, Jay? Doing great. Back from the holidays. Yep. Caffeinated. Ready to go. Yep. Wake up, music industry. It's time to work Wake again. Up. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a returning special guest. Is this is this Steve's second or third yes. time? Yes. I think it's, well, Might I don't know. Third. It might have been three. Uh, third time. Third. Third time. Yeah. So, Jay, tell us what 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 brings well, Steve back. Well, I, I want to. I don't think we've done this in past shows. I, I want to give a little bit of his bio, but before I do, I I, I always want to give a plug to his book, The Future of the Music Business. Uh, the fourth edition is out, and he's got a new book out that we're going to be talking about. But before we get there, this this book had a pretty profound impact on on me and. Um, I think I'd mentioned once before that I had bought a copy for everybody on my team back when I think the first edition came out. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, meet Steve. And I think I was on his podcast when I launched my digital label back in 2004. Um, I've been a, a big fan of Steve's. Let me read you just a little bit from his bio to give you an idea of his background. It says, uh, Steve's an entertainment attorney with over 25 years of experience, including 10 years as director of business affairs uh, video for Sony Music. His current and recent clients include emerging and major recording artists, uh, managers, music, television producers, entertainment companies, cultural institutions. We'll have to talk about that. And I mean, Steve's got a wealth of uh, a knowledge base to kind of build from, but what I love talking to Steve about is just kind of uh, demystifying um, some of the uh, things that we deal with in the music industry. And that brings us to um, his new book, which is called The 11 Contracts That Every Artist, Songwriter, and Producer Should Know. And um, I've read some of these things online, uh, some really great stuff. But before we get in there, let's uh, welcome Steve. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you, and thanks to you and Michael for inviting me back. It's our pleasure. Always a good time. Our pleasure. Always a good time. So you've got a new book out, Steve, and I just mentioned the the title. Um, what what you know? What was the impetus behind this? Why did you write this book? Well, the title is the 11 contracts that every artist, songwriter, and producer should know. And the book is uh, going to be published by Hal Leonard, which is the publisher that published The Future of the Music Business, and the book should be available by March. But it's uh, available for pre-order now. If you check out Back Wing, B-A-C-K Wing, W-I-N-G, dot com, and search for 11 contracts, You'll find some information about the book, and it is available for pre-order now. And if people do pre-order it, they'll get an hour of uh, free video of uh, Bob Clarida, who's a copyright litigator, and I talking about the fundamentals of the music business and copyright infringement in the music business context. Now, this book is something that I wrote because of my 15 years of practice in the music business after leaving Sony. And the 11 contracts that I discuss in the book are the most common contracts that people in the music business who need legal attention call me about. Uh, and I wrote it because there's nothing else like it. So if you Google management agreement, 
or you Google producer agreement, or you Google music artist agreement, you're not going to find much of anything. So I know, because I'm a lawyer, that there are collections of legal treatises, uh, they're named Lindy and Farber, about the entertainment business and contracts. They're like eight volume sets, but they're only available in legal libraries. And what they do is they take a music publishing agreement or an artist contract and they annotate it, giving commentary on each provision so that entertainment lawyers know what issues are behind each provision in the contract. But these sets of volumes are only available in law libraries, or you can pay more than $3,000 to get a set. <laughs> so this book, which is now priced at $37.50, that's $37.50. So that's less than $3,000, right? <laughs> that is much less, yes. Okay, just making and sure we're on the same page. What it does is it takes contracts, and I'm going to name the 11 contracts in a second, but it gives the pro artist contract, and I also provide the pro company contract, and I annotate both so that the person, the reader, will know what the pro artist contract looks like, what the pro company contract looks like, because they're very different, and I annotate each contract showing or writing about the issues involved in each provision. Steve, let me so, ask you. Let me ask you real quick. Yes. When, for our Go listeners ahead. who don't know, when you say pro, are you meaning the contract that's in favor of the artist, and then the contract that's in favor of the business? Precisely. Okay. So, if you have a management deal, there is a pro artist contract, and then there is a contract that's much more in favor of the manager. Got it. And, um, yeah, I'd like to talk about that uh, kind of contract uh, later on. But the 11 contracts that this um, book um, gets into are management agreements, production company deals, including the contract from hell, which I'd like to discuss with you. Please. Indie label <coughs> deals, sync licenses, that's putting your music in commercials or movies or television. Producer agreements, music publishing deals, composer agreements, live performance contracts, music video production contracts, band agreements, and investment agreements. And in the band agreements chapter, I not only include a band agreement and discuss the provisions of a band agreement, I also discuss what a band or a solo artist can do and should do without a lawyer legal actions that they should take without a lawyer because a lot of times bands form and then they unform they never make any money it's not worth going to a lawyer to pay a lawyer to do a full-fledged band agreement but there are certain things that they should do and can do without a lawyer which i want to discuss with you today as well so those are the 11 contracts and i also give introductions before giving you the contracts and the annotations. And in the introductions, I provide context. For instance, in the chapter about uh, music publishing deals, I give you three different music publishing deals. But before I do that, I give you context. What is music publishing? 
What is a music publisher? How does a song generate money? What is the function of ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC? So I give you context in the introductions before giving you the contracts themselves. So I wrote the book because I couldn't find anything like it except for those sets of volumes in the law library. Nice, nice. Uh, Steve, so let, who do you think I, I, would benefit? Well, Jay, Go ahead. Jay, real quick Go ahead, question, Mike. just so I clarify this, are you actually including blank template contracts for each one of these that that an artist could pull this out and drop in their own you know their own name their own terms and whatever and and they've got a contract that they can use mike these contracts will be downloadable how leonard will give a, a password for a website where you can actually download the contracts as pdfs but they're not meant to replace a lawyer Sure. What they're meant to do is to explain the contract, the pro artist, the sure. pro company. To educate. To educate. Now, you know, if people want to use these forms, they can, but I don't advise it. I think that they should find somebody who can consult with them and um, help them negotiate. Because even though you have a contract, pro artist, pro manager, as they said in my old law firm, when I was at uh, a law firm called Bear Cats, we were the law firm for Atlantic Records, forms are dummies. Now, these are not completely dumb forms because they're annotated, but when you actually negotiate one of these agreements, any number of different permutations may come up. For instance, if you're an artist and you're already making money as a model, and you hire a manager, you don't want that manager to get money from your modeling career because you've already set that up. You want to carve that out. And to negotiate and to draft that kind of provision needs an expert. The form will give you guidance as to the basics of each provision. But as you negotiate your particular deal, things will come up that will require negotiation, drafting, and expertise. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense, Steve, because you know, it, you're not saying to these artists that they should become their own lawyer. What you're trying to do here, it sounds like, is kind of avoid the situation we've seen in the past where artists, managers, whoever get taken um, because they don't educate themselves. They don't understand that there are options. And I think what this does which is really important, is gives you the education so you can ask the right questions. That's it, exactly, Jay. And if you, as an artist or a songwriter or producer, read one of these chapters before calling a lawyer, you're going to save a lot of time and a lot of money because you'll have educated yourself as to the basics so the lawyer doesn't have to re-educate you. And since lawyers charge uh, based on time, it's going to save you money. Makes sense. So, touch on you, you had mentioned a second ago. There are a couple of couple of things that maybe contracts that you or situations that you might recommend uh, a client not use an attorney for. What would those be? Oh, by the way, can I smoke on camera? Oh yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for giving me permission. Well, I want to get into one of the most important contracts floating around these days. 
Um, as you know, major labels are signing fewer and fewer artists. And in the wake of less signings, there are more production companies out there who are signing artists and promising them to do a demo, to do an EP, and then try to shop them to major labels. And I've seen this time and time again, and I call it the contract from hell. Can we get into that now? Please. Please. So a production company generally consists, or I've seen it a lot of times, of a producer, a guy who may have been at a label, and a financial backer, somebody from a hedge fund who wants to get into the music business. And these guys create a company, and what they do is they go around scouting for talent, and they'll see people on Facebook or artists on uh, Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram who have a following, and they'll look to see if the producer guy thinks that they have some talent. And then if they decide to seek out this artist, they may offer the contract from hell. And I call it that because it looks a lot like a recording uh, artist agreement from a label with all the things that are in a, an agreement with a label. But the problem is that they are not a label. And before I get into the specifics of the contract that's being offered, let me discuss the difference between a production company, a producer, and a hedge fund guy, and a real record label. A real record label provides staff that provide marketing and publicity. A real record label tries to pitch your music to radio and television, and they have relationships with radio and television so that they can actually get your music on radio and get you time on television. A real record label will provide the money to do a real video so you can get it up on YouTube or one of MTV's digital channels. A real, a real record label will have relationships with digital services like Apple or Spotify to get you on the home pages. A real record label has relationships with music supervisors for movies and television to get your music on TV programs and movies. A real record label has distribution, not only digital, but with Walmart and Best Buy and the other chains. And a real record label has the money necessary to do all of the work above, plus give you an advance that will help you leave your day gig and be a musician 24-7. A production company usually has none of these things, and yet they offer the same kind of contract a real record label would, including the infamous 360 deal. And the 360 provision, as you guys know, is taking 20, 25% or even more of all of your income from any income stream in the entertainment business in addition to the sale of records. So we're talking about live performance, we're talking about merch, we're talking about endorsements, we're talking about sync, and it's unfair because the production company doesn't offer all the services a record label would. What and are they offering, Steve? 
are they saying that they're going to get you a publishing deal, a label deal? They're going to get you on a big tour. What, what are what are these production companies promising outside of maybe getting you in the studio and helping you create something that you can shop? Well, Jay, when they're sitting down with the artist, of course they're saying we're going to make you a star. You're going to be a star, kid. <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> what they're actually offering is production services, making a demo, making an EP, and shopping the record. And that's really all, in fact, they're offering. And wow. the, the, the sadness of this is that they may be just trying to catch you, like catching a fish, and they put you on the boat. And if you ever do become a success, they can come back to the label, knock on the door, and say, guess what? We have a contract with this kid. Pay us off. So... There's a number of production companies that are only doing this to gain catalog so that if the artist is ever successful, they can get their pay, pay off. In fact, I have, a, I have an artist who came to me with this terrible deal that I prevented her from signing. And, um, and we can talk about this later when I talk about management. I got her management and together we got her a big deal with Sony. And she's on her way to being a big star now. Now, the people that offered her this agreement, they haven't gone away. Even though she didn't sign the agreement, they still want their payday. Because she had a, a recording that she had put up on YouTube. They re-recorded it in New York. And now they're saying, oh, okay, this re-record is what you got your deal with Sony for. Wow on the basis of this re-record, we want to get a payday now. So they're trying to extort money, even now from Sony, for a contract that she didn't even sign. Steve, Steve let, me, wow. let me ask you, is it, is it typical in production agreements that they are exclusive? Meaning that if an artist does sign with that production company and that production company says, we are the only people who can shop you for a record deal. You can't go have another lawyer. You can't have somebody else. It only has to be us. Well, that's a good question, Mike. It is exclusive. And that's not in itself unfair if it's limited to a period of time. Say, we're going to record your demo and we're going to shop your record and give us 18 months to find a deal. That's fair. But what these production contracts do is because they are similar or the same as label deals, they lock the artist in <clears throat> to a number of albums and options so that once the artist signs the contract, not only are they committing to the production company doing a demo or an EP, they're giving the production company the right to make up to six albums. Oh my gosh. Options. Yes, which could continue for more than 20 years. So they're giving the artist the same deal as a traditional record company without giving the artist any of the benefits and locking them in to a multi-album deal. That's what I call the contract from hell. Yeah. And if they do sign this contract from hell, and let's say they get signed to Sony, can can they take their piece of the pie on top of Sony taking their piece of the pie and then the artist gets very little? Right. If, if they don't buy them out? 
that's what would happen eventually. But up front, the production contract will give the production company 50% of whatever the label pays the artist, plus another 5 to 30% of every income stream. And that leaves the artist with very little. And if the record company is sincerely interested in the artist, there will be negotiation with the production company to buy yeah. them out. But again, that money could also be recoupable from the artist account at the record company. So it's a very sad situation, and I've seen it time and time again, and every time I've helped the artist avoid signing this contract. But I don't know how many times people artists sign these contracts because they're desperate, they don't have money for a lawyer, and that's another reason why I wrote the book. Or they so, don't know any better. Yeah, and for $37.50, hopefully you can avoid this kind of tragedy in your career. Other than uh, you shining a light on it, Steve, is there any kind of movement towards uh, you know, calling more attention to this, outlawing it? Um, I'm sure the labels aren't happy about it. Well, they put up with it, and a lot of these production companies are former label staffers. I, I think the only other resource I can think of besides this book is Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. And I know that DLA, which has offices in all the major cities, uh, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Nashville, is getting more and more business from music artists who are receiving these kinds of offers. So I, I do recommend Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. If you Google it and your city, it'll come up and they'll give you a very low-cost consultation. Uh, they may provide some legal help, uh, even though they're not really set up to do music work. Uh, they are connected to music lawyers. And uh, if your income is such, if you're a recent grad and you're making very little income, you may qualify to get a free lawyer assigned to you. So Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts is a good resource. But that's the only other resource I know besides this book. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, Steve, what 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 other contract do you want to kind of shine a spotlight on from your book? I mean, we don't. Unfortunately, we aren't going to have time to go through all eleven of them, but a couple of them here would be really nice. Okay, let's discuss management because uh, aside from the production company contract, which I see over and over again. The management contract is the contract I see most often. Um, and I see these contracts most often because there's no money involved up front. The artist usually doesn't have much money. The production contract comes in. It doesn't offer the artist any money, but the artist doesn't have to pay anything. So the artist is inclined to look at it seriously. And the management contract is the other contract that comes to my attention the most often because there's no money up front. There's no money changing hands up front. Uh, before we talk about the basics of a management contract and what you should avoid signing um, is the role of the manager. Um, the manager gives advice and counsel in all aspects of an artist's career, uh, including what deals to accept and not. So if you had a manager, they would help you not sign that contract from hell. But the manager is more important than that. The manager talks about style, the management talks about presentation, the manager guides you into a position that you're ready for success. For instance, I like to think of the Brian Epstein 
uh, anecdote with the Beatles where he took them from leather jackets when they were playing in Germany to suits and ties and haircuts, making them unique and original, which set them up for great success. And so a manager can be absolutely pivotal to an artist's career and to an artist's success. The traditional role of the manager, in addition to all of that, is to get an artist a contract. Now, a contract with a big label. That doesn't happen, as you guys well know, that doesn't happen as much as it used to, but it still happens. So, I'm going to go back to the girl I was talking about with that bad production contract, which she didn't sign. She had 200,000 buying followers, and she had some limited interest from junior A&R people at the labels when she came to me. When I got rid of that contract, I got her with good management, and good management got her into Columbia as well as Warner and Republic and Ireland, and they had, had his daughter present, and she was nine years old, and when they started playing the music, she said, oh my God, that's my favorite artist. And the president of Columbia said, okay, we want her. Because <laughs> the nine-year-old loved her. And they wanted to sign her. The president of Warner Records flew in the same night because he had heard about this and took them out to dinner, my client and her father, because they wanted her to steal her from Columbia. It was a bidding war, and management was able to get her a million-dollar deal which is not so bad these days. And then she signed a publishing contract for even more money. And as I said, she's on her way to great success. But the management in this case was personal friends with the president of Columbia, personal friends with the president of Warner. And that is the traditional role, the biggest role for management traditionally. Now you have fewer deals like that and managers have to operate more like labels and have to do marketing and social media uh, for an artist until they get to the level where a big record label is interested in them. And by the way, the big record labels are still really important. If you look at any of the award shows, the Grammys, for instance, all of these artists, Soul Train Awards, are with big labels because it's still the big labels that are the biggest funders of an artist's career. Um, that's, they're still the gatekeepers, for better or worse. Uh, Apple and Microsoft have not jumped into that role. So if you want to be a household name, you're still going to go through this rite of passage. And a management company or a manager can lead you to that kind of deal um, if you get the right manager. So with that said, we can discuss what a management agreement looks like. Now, I just got a management agreement yesterday that was terrible for an artist. Very pro-manager. It gives the manager power of attorney. The manager can not only, in this contract, the pro-manager contract, not only sign contracts on behalf of an artist, the manager could have you committed to a mental asylum. It has power of attorney. I. It was so egregious. It was it was so horrible. I, uh, What's the justification for that? Justification for that is if it's somebody is stupid enough to sign it. Um, <laughs> it's no, just, no justification for that. A manager should have the right to enter into a contract only with an artist's approval. And I don't care if it's for a record deal, 
or three nights at an amusement park. The artist should always have the right to approve any deal before a manager signs it on behalf of the artist. Now, the manager should have the right to sign because the artist may be in, you know, Turkey or Brazil and the manager has the contract in front of them, but only with the artist's consent. Another big um, factor in a management agreement, let me go through the factors and uh, what a management agreement includes. The term, the commission, sunset clause, who collects money, and the manager's power to enter into contracts. Now we've already discussed the manager's power to enter contracts. They shouldn't have any power to enter the contracts unless the artist approves the deal in writing by an email. All right, so let's discuss the most important term in a management agreement, which is the capital T term. A, a management contract is like a marriage. You don't want to enter into it unless you have an escape clause. Now, with marriage agreements, there is no escape clause, but with a management agreement, there should be one. 18 months is what I recommend. And if the manager does a great job, then the manager should have an option to extend the contract. But the management agreement should not be 18 months with automatic options. Like the one I saw yesterday was 18 months or two years with an option for an additional four years. If that is the case, even if the manager doesn't do a good job, you can be stuck with that manager for six years. And then you have a situation like the production company, where if the artist is ever successful, even if the manager did nothing, the manager can go knock knock to the record company and say, by the way, I'm the manager, I want my 20%, which is the ordinary commission, 15 to 20%, yeah. even if the manager did nothing, and then the record company has to buy management out. That should not be the case. Does that escape clause work both ways, Steve? Could if I have a an agreement that has an escape clause, can they dump me as an artist and I could dump them? Does it work both ways? Yes, it should work both ways. The bad agreement, the pro management agreement, is only one way. The manager has the option to extend. The good agreement is where the artist can refuse to extend. Now, sometimes we'll negotiate that if the manager gets a major record company deal that the artist approves, then the manager has the right to extend. Or if the manager actually yeah. makes more than $100,000 for the artist in the first 18 months, then the manager has an automatic right to extend. So there's incentives, yeah. That's the way to do it. Okay. Uh, the commission is usually 15 to 20%, but as important as the commission is, it's not as important as defining the expenses. So if your commission to your manager is 15% and there's no deduction for expenses, what usually happens is 15% is a gross. That's the normal deal. So if you go on tour and you make 25000 but your expenses are 30000 the manager is entitled to 15% of that 30000 whereas you've made no money, in fact, you've lost money, and then you owe the manager $6,000. That shouldn't be the case. The percentage of gross has to be defined as 
minus expenses, minus touring, minus recording. If you spend 100000 making an album and the manager's commission is 15% and you only sell 10,000 albums and you lose $90,000, you don't want to be in further debt to your manager. This happened with Pebbles and, um, oh, who was the, uh, uh, the group that Pebbles uh, managed? Um, the girl group that uh, Pebbles managed. I'll think, I'll think of it. They actually lost money for every album they sold because management management got a percentage of gross. So that's another trap you shouldn't fall into. So Steve, Steve, does that mean that management shouldn't be able to commission an advance from a record label? That is fair, but it should be minus expenses. So if the advance is a recording fund of, say, $250,000, and $200,000 of that is going to go into the record, the manager should not commission 15 or 20% of $250,000. The manager should only commission 15% of the $50,000 that's left over. Okay. An another question regarding what they can commission is just that. Can a manager commission every source of income now that you're under an agreement, or do they only commission things that they had involvement in securing? Well, uh, this did come up uh, earlier this week. Um, I had a client who uh, got management last year, and during the course of the term, she signed with a big pop star who's going to be her producer, her label, and she's going to release a record through Atlantic. Big pop star is signed to Atlantic Records now. And she got the deal on her own. Management did not. Technically, under the contract that she had with management, management was entitled to 15% their commission. Management, being decent people, waived that commission because they accepted the fact that she got the deal on her own. But the argument on behalf of management, if they wanted the commission, is that, look, we took you under our wing, we spent time with you, giving you advice, encouragement, we set up a couple of concerts, we introduced you to these people, and we raised you to a certain level of success, and we're entitled to the success that you got, even if you got it on your own. And I wouldn't quibble with management in that instance. Uh, I think that it would be appropriate for them to get their money. And every management agreement, even a pro-artist agreement, would say that. These people, this management, was just entirely lovely people, and they want the best for the artist. And they will be rewarded because the artist is going to continue to work with them, and they will get a percentage of income as uh, this artist goes forward in her career, uh, including with the record that's going to be released by Atlantic and a tour that she's going to do starting in Latin America because she's a Latin artist. So uh, technically, they were entitled to it. They waived it. They'll be rewarded. Okay. Yeah. Good faith. Good. 
So the only other thing I wanted to discuss with you guys today is there's a chapter in the book about band agreements, and uh, I interviewed Irving Azoff, a great manager and entrepreneur, uh, about band agreements. And um, here's what we kind of agreed to. In the real world, 90% of bands are not going to be successful, not going to make enough money to justify going to see a lawyer and doing a band agreement which would include provisions about what happens if the band breaks up in terms of property, uh, bank accounts, money in a bank account for the band, how is it to buy. If there's no money, what's the purpose of doing a full-fledged band agreement? There is none. But short of going to a lawyer and paying them to do a band agreement and then facing all the little insignificant issues that may never come up, there are things, legal things, that a band should do, and even a solo artist should do, that they can do without a lawyer. And so the chapter on band agreements is half on band agreements, on half on the legal actions a band or a solo artist should do to protect themselves legally. And the first thing they should do, if they write songs, is register with ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. Now, a lot of bands don't think of this because they're not on radio, right? And radio and television are the biggest players in terms of performing rights. Maybe we should take a step back. ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC represent songwriters for the purpose of collecting public performance revenues. And public performance revenues largely come from television radio. Last year, ASCAP and BMI collected a billion dollars, approximately a billion dollars each, for public performance income from radio, television, and big internet services. Now, a lot of artists are not on radio and television, and so they think, what's the purpose of joining ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC? I'm not going to get paid anyway. Well, the purpose is this. In the last few years, starting with CSAC, the Performing rights organizations, PROs, ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, perceived that they weren't paying out to a majority of their membership. Artists who were playing sidewalk, cafe, or places that don't even pay the artists anything. So what they started to do, starting with CSAC, is to tell the artists who write their own songs, look, we know we're not paying you for radio because you're not on radio but we will pay you for live performance. Send us your set list, the name of the venue, and we will pay you for your performance of your own songs for performing live. So I have a singer-songwriter who made $1,200 in a quarter, three months. For her, that was a significant amount of money by reporting her songs to CSAC. ASCAP and BMI joined the party. So if you join ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, and you're a singer-songwriter, you're a band that writes your own music, and you play venues that pay you a little bit or nothing, you can still make money from your PRO by providing them a set list. If you go into ASCAP's uh, website, or BMI's website, or CSAC's website, just search for membership for live performance, you'll find the web page that will set you up so that every time you do a performance, you can get paid. So this is something that's quasi-legal that should be done, and it, it doesn't require a lawyer. And it's something that it's kind of hidden, you know? You don't know yeah. about it <laughs> until you yeah. know. Yeah. 
No, that's great advice, Steve. You know, honestly, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, I, I find all of this stuff so enlightening and educating. I can't wait to get the book. I encourage everybody who watches the show to get the book, um, as well as Steve's other books. Um, Steve, I hope you'll come on again. Every time we talk, you know, it's, it's it, like I said, it's enlightening. And, and uh, I wish you much success with this book. Um, I think that there's a great need for it, and I think it's going to do really well. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. It's such a pleasure to talk to you guys. I really appreciate thank, it. Th- thank you so much, Steve. Great information. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Uh, you know, having Steve, it's always, I, I, I feel like we're lucky that we just got to sit down for an hour-long consultation with uh, an expert music attorney. Yeah. For free. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been a running theme on this show for the last year, and that is, you know, don't leave it to somebody else. Educate yourself. And this just put a exclamation point on that because, you, as we said, or as he said, this isn't to make you an attorney. This is make to make you educated and so you ask the right questions, you know, when you're in these situations. Right, right, right. You know, I... I, I I got to tell you, one of the most common questions I always get from small and, and new artists is, where can I find a contract? Where can I, you know, because they can't afford $400 an hour for a lawyer. They want a contract. They want something. And and there just aren't contracts to be found. There really right. aren't. I mean, you might be yeah. lucky that somebody will give you a copy of their contract but you yeah, don't, but then you don't have the notes. You don't. You don't, you have, don't have the, have the notes. You don't know why it was revised into that final version, which may not apply to you. This exactly. book is is. I'm so looking forward to this. Is going to be an absolute gold mine when it comes to the contracts. Of you're going to have the contracts, but you're more importantly going to have the context behind them. You're going to see two different versions, which I think is great, because if yep. you're a manager and you want a contract. Well, here's the contract you should present. If you're an artist, here's the contract you should present to to a potential manager. And you're going to know what both sides of the contract should yeah. be looking like. It, it it helps you walk into battle prepared. It's it's worth a lot more than $30. And, and I encourage everybody to pick up The Future of the Music Business. I, I love that book. There's so much great information in that book. You know, for years... All the industry had was maybe, you know, Donald Passman's book, which is great. Um, but now we're, we're getting to a point where we're getting down into the minutiae, into the things that affect, you know, the DIYers as well as the folks that, you know, are, you know, superstars. And uh, I, that was just a fascinating conversation. The only problem is we could literally talk for hours we and hours go, about this thing. hours with it. But, yeah, please go out, pre-order, the, pre-order Steve's book. Um, I know the two of us are pre-ordering it right away as well. So yep, count on it. Um, let's do a little uh, quick tidbit. Digital here strategy on, talk. Uh, digital strategy. I know we didn't have a chance to uh, talk about which tidbit for this week, but let me just throw this one out. Sure. And I think this will be a fun one. If you think just having someone to post what you give them on your social networks is a online strategy. You need help with your online strategy. What does that mean? You see that all the time. What does that mean? That means because somebody has a nephew, an uncle, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a mom, a dad, a, you know, a brother, a sister, 
who you turn around and say, here's my new press release. Can you post this to Facebook? That's not an online strategy. That's no, an assistant it's not who does whatever you tell. An yeah. online strategy is what are you going to do with that press release? Where is it going to get posted? How is it going to get posted? How is How it going to be tagged? How is it going to be linked? Um, all right, you posted it the first time. What is the reposting strategy? How are you going to reshare it? Where are you? You know, an online strategy encompasses so many questions like that. Just yeah. are you going to put some money behind it? Yeah, How are you going to reach boost, all your are you fans? Boost and, the post. And is it your voice? The thing that bothers me when I look at social sometimes is you can't be too selly. It can't just be buy my record, buy my record, buy my record. It's about a relationship, right? And the people who do it the best are the people that engage their audience, communicate with their audience, answer questions, engage. Then when you have something to sell, it's it does get shared, you know? And when you just have some friend of yours or a relative just post some pictures from a show or you need to include your voice. Yep. You need to make that relationship happen yourself. Yeah, yeah. So so don't think that that is a marketing strategy because you went out and, and hey, maybe you're paying that person. Maybe you're paying them 100 bucks a month, 200 bucks a month. If all they're doing is reposting what you give them, you need, that, help. That you, need help. you could save yourself $200 and do it yourself. That's what it comes down to. That or, you know, your personal assistant is not your marketing strategy. Maybe you've got them doing double duty for you. There's a lot more to a marketing strategy, an online strategy, than just posting something. Amen. All right. So uh, another great chat. Great. We yeah, will, good, good we'll, conversation. We'll be back next week. We've got a number of very cool guests we're lining up. So uh, yeah. Music Business Stay with us. Podcast. We're out of here. Bye.